702. The Naked Scientist. All of your interesting science-related questions or just how things work, your tweets at Rilebukhile-M at Radio 702. Christmas, Doctor, how are you doing? Well, you know, I'd say I'd say pretty good, actually. How about yourself? I'm wonderful. Happy Valentine's Day, if you do celebrate it. Well, yeah, I was just wondering where my card is. Is that is that in the post? Is it coming? <laughs> Did you like yours? I, I I prefer to declare my love publicly, <laughs> so I'm wishing you happy Valentine's Day. Same, same. That's a brilliant strategy. Yeah, I wish you all the best, and I'm declaring my love as well. Mutual admiration okay. society founded. I love it. I love it. All right, so we've already got some voice notes that have been um, uh, coming through. Let's start with the first one. Hi, Rilebukhile. I wanted to ask the naked scientist. Um, my son is terrified of shoes. When we put shoes on him and make him stand, he just cries. So I'm wondering now, is that part, is, is that also like a sensory overload or something? Um, because, I mean, he wears socks. He went, I put the shoes on with socks on, sometimes without socks, but still he, he, he doesn't want to wear shoes. He just cries. And it's not the size of the shoe that's the matter. Is Can you please help me out with that? Koliswa here in Rustenbeck. Ooh, interesting one. Doctor? I think probably this is just children being scared of new things and new sensations. And, I mean, I remember one of my children being really very grossly traumatised when we tried to trim her toenails. Uh, she used to call them her feet nails, and she used to scream, I don't want my feet nails to be cut. And I used to hate having my fingernails trimmed as well. The feet and hands have a really big representation in the brain. In other words, if we were to map out how much brain matter we devote to the information coming in through our fingers and toes, it's enormous, especially our big toe. And so children derive a lot of information about what's going on in the world around them through what they feel with their feet. And if you change that sensation, it does feel very strange to them, especially if they've got used to having nothing on their feet or just minimal coating like thin socks or something. And then you put something that to them feels constraining and confining. But children are by tendency a bit risk averse and they tend to avoid new things. They don't like novelty at least initially. And it might just be that the combination of depriving them of a bit of sensory input that they've got used to, something's changed and things don't feel quite right, is just making them a little bit anxious about it. But usually, with a bit of perseverance, they settle down. And especially as they grow a little bit older as well, it can often be the case when they're really small, this tends to happen with with a range of different experiences. And then they settle down and get a lot better as they get a bit older. So it might just be a combination of a little bit more time and just gently introducing shoes initially as friends perhaps as playthings get them used to having shoes around them and things that they're familiar with seeing and then turn it into a bit of a game when they go on they get a reward and a treat and then you'll find that pretty quickly they'll quite like having the shoes on and then they'll stop worrying that they have got the shoes on and i think um uh, as you said before when we uh, i was asking about the sensory overload um i'm assuming then for the parents that are listening that may be dealing with a similar type of question it is then gentle exposure. Yeah, that's right. And as I say, play is a powerful thing. And if you introduce something that you want to get a child used to through the elements of play and have a sort of reward built into it as well. So they do something with the shoes and something fun happens and then slowly the shoes make their way onto the feet and something fun and nice happens. Eventually they associate the nice things happening with the shoes being on and then the screaming blue murder when the shoes are on stop. 
I got you. I got you completely. All right, we've got a call. We've got Lucas in Pretoria. Hi, Lucas. Hi, how are you guys? We're great, thank you. All right. I just want to quickly ask the doctor, like, I mean, what do they mean by time space? Because that's something I cannot grasp. I mean, time itself is intangible and space itself. So when they say time space, what do they mean? Hi, Lucas. Well, actually, they're referring to space-time, and it was Einstein that came up with this idea because before Einstein came along, Isaac Newton, a few hundred years ago, had worked out these various laws, Isaac Newton's laws of of motion, and he came up with the concept of gravitation, why things are attracted to each other, and his calculations were very good, and at the sorts of scales that we were considering them, they worked exceptionally well. But then Einstein came along and said, well, actually, this is not going to work when we invoke other circumstances at much greater scales, you know, bigger magnitudes. And in fact, uh, Newton's calculations will be slightly wide of the mark. And Einstein's calculations, which have been subsequently proven by proper experimentation, show that we can't really regard space as this intangible thing that just stuff attracts each other. We have to have a model for why, uh, say, the Earth goes around the Sun. And what Einstein envisaged was that the fabric of space is actually this thing called space-time. And this stems from the work he did on relativity. And a really good way of thinking about this is that if uh, if I accept that light is the fastest thing in the universe, then if I start travelling at the speed of light, then... I watch what happens to myself travelling at the speed of light. As far as I'm concerned, I'm travelling at the speed of light, but if I measure light travelling away from me, it's also travelling at the speed of light. But someone watching me send some light away from myself does not measure something moving at twice the speed of light, they measure something moving at the speed of light. So in other words, in order to make the calculations add up, because the speed of light is always measured as the speed of light, you have to invoke a bending of time instead to compensate. And so this means that for the person travelling at the speed of light, for them, time ticks normally. But for other people who are outside that person's frame of reference, time changes. And so if I travelled very, very fast, time would tick at the same rate for me. But for people who were watching me, time would go much faster. So I would, so, so in other words, if I went away from Earth travelling at the speed of light and came back, then I would have aged less than the people on Earth. And this is the bizarre thing that takes a lot of wrapping your head around. But it's also the fact that if I then measure how fast does time tick, not when I'm travelling very fast, but when I'm near something very massive. So if I go near a black hole, or I go near planet Earth actually, the gravitational Uh bending of space by the Earth also affects time. So time ticks at a faster rate for your head than it does for your, sorry, for your feet than it does for your head. And this is because your feet are closer to the centre of the Earth where it's most gravitationally active, your head's slightly further away. So if you had a clock in your head and a clock on your feet, your feet are ageing faster than your head is. And if that hasn't bent the world and your mental view, <laughs> then nothing will. It's that bizarre distortion and, and the tying up of space and time that means we have to regard space as not this thing which is just an empty void, but is 
a material which we don't understand but we dub space-time which can be distorted by the speed at which you travel and the mass that is uh, experiencing that space-time. Lucas, are you answered? Because I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah, well, well, all I have to do is say is thank you, Doctor, for making it even worse confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You came here for answers and the doctor confused well, us. Well, I gave you Maybe an answer, but like I, didn't, I didn't say it would be a simple one. <laughs> no, no, no. I do understand you, Doctor. As in, it's the same as having a frame of reference. Like, like if you are standing there, you have a different experience from someone who is moving at that other point. So it could basically... In basic physics, it's like you're having a frame of reference from where you're standing at, right? Yeah, well, if you took Newton's view, say I was riding along on my bicycle and I pulled out a pea shooter and Uh I fired a pea at you from my pea shooter uh, or a paper dart or something, then you would be hit by a paper dart going at the speed I fired it and the speed of my bike added together. But if Mm -hmm. I fired a laser beam at you and you measured the speed of light coming from the laser beam, you wouldn't measure a light beam coming at you at the speed of light plus the speed of my bike. You would measure a light beam coming at you at just the speed of light. I would also measure a light beam coming at you at just the speed of light, but actually it must be moving faster because I'm riding my bike, shouldn't it? Well, no, That's that was Einstein's theory of special relativity, and time has to change to make up for the fact that we always measure light as travelling at the same speed. Mm, Lucas in Pretoria, what a fascinating question that you asked. I'll, I will take the time to go and understand it a bit better. I get the concept. I think the part that confused me is the the aging slower or faster than the other. Let me do my homework. We go to Teddy in Northcliffe. Hi, Teddy. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. And you? Hi, Doc. I just wanted to excuse the pun. I wanted to continue on the trajectory of um, facial experiments. This notion in um, quantum physics about um, looking at particles, like how one particle, if one particle is affected on one side of space, that it is possibly this identical particle would also be affected millions of miles away. Well, it's it's absolutely Mm. true. This is called entanglement. And actually, Einstein was a bit sniffy about this at first. And he said this sounds like spooky action at a distance. But actually, it's true. And we don't understand how this works and we don't understand why it works, but we know it is absolutely true. If you create two particles and entangle them so they they share a quantum relationship, so, for instance, you could take a beam of light and you could split the beam of light so the stream of photons is coming from the beam of light and it's split in half and one stream goes one way, one goes another. Those photons are entangled they share information about each other. And you can then send one stream of particles to one place and one to another, but they still know about, in inverted commas, each other. And uh, this means that they can have some bizarre effects. So if you did take a particle to the other side of the universe, it would still know about its counterpart. And if you changed something about one of them, you would change something about the other. And there are loads of experiments that prove that this is the case. So the particles know you're measuring them. So it's very bizarre. No one understands all of this, but it works. So at the moment, we use it. And it was actually, I think, Niels Bohr. The quote has been many times re, re um, kind of recycled and adapted a bit. But he basically said, if you weren't confused by quantum mechanics, then you didn't understand it. 
I love that. Um, somebody in the WhatsApp line in, in a, a comment to our first uh, a caller's question um, regarding this time says, did the naked scientists just confirm that short people age faster than tall people? Well, uh, no. What I did <laughs> confirm is that different bits of your body actually age faster than other bits because your feet are closer to the center of the earth and gravity acts through the center of a body so in the earth we're talking about the core of the earth being earth's gravitational center your feet are marginally closer to the earth's core and its center of gravity than your head is and therefore your feet are aging ever so slightly faster because they're subject to a higher gravitational field than your head but given that the radius of the earth is about six thousand kilometers and the height of the average person is probably between five and six feet then really the difference is going to be absolutely tiny but it's in physics terms still an effect all right we have z2 in pretoria hi z2 Hi. When somebody dies, there's this belief that their energy doesn't get destroyed, but it goes and lives in their offspring. How true is that? So energy going to live in the offsprings because energy can't be destroyed, it's transferred when a person dies. It's certainly true that we do live on in our offspring, and every living thing does that, and we do that by passing our genetic material on. We all come from a fertilised egg, which one egg and one sperm met and merged the genetic material of both our parents. And in that way, we form a new version which contains, hopefully, the best of both. And when you have children, you do the same. You pass on half of your genetic code onto each of your children. It's a different half for each child, but you're passing on half of your genetic code. But when we die... We don't instantly switch off. We don't see our weight suddenly change. There was some claim about 100 years ago or so that when people die, suddenly their body loses weight um, and presumably their spirit leaving the body or something, although it's, the physics is the wrong way around because if your body, uh, if you lose weight, then this must argue that um, you've actually your, your spirit or whatever it was was sinking into the floor, not rising up to the heavens. So presumably all these people who lost weight when they died, their soul was going to hell. But... Um, the, the bottom line is that you don't just suddenly switch off. You are about 37 trillion cells, which contain a whole host of different chemicals and things, and you've got as many bacteria in you as there are human cells in you. You're a passenger almost in your own body, effectively. And when you die, you are returning to Mother Earth all of the chemistry and chemicals and nutrients that are in your body. Because you have heaped up together lots of exciting chemicals and put them all in one place, you're an excellent food source for microbes, and that includes bacteria and fungi. And so they come along and they will basically eat you up. And when we bury people, we put them in the ground, and the microorganisms both in them but others that join the party later will contribute to that decay process and they unstitch all the all the molecules and atoms that we have brought together in one place in our body, and they return those things and those chemistries back into the environment where they can form new life, sustaining life, on the way to forming new life. And so, basically, all the atoms that are here on Earth either came from the Big Bang about 13.8 billion years ago, or uh, they were born in stars in the universe that merged together smaller atoms and made bigger ones and then blew themselves to pieces or died and spewed out this material into space. And a lot of it aggregated here on Earth. And so the air we're breathing, the carbon atoms, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the sulphur, the oxygen that is in our DNA, 
that has all come from out there in the universe. So we're all just recycling the atoms all the time anyway, and that process is happening on a local scale here on Earth. All right, Sbu in Pretoria, go ahead. Hey, good afternoon, uh, Dr. Chris, I just have a question for you. Um, how does Hyperloop technology work? Because I've heard that Virgin has actually been testing out a few of those or things in the desert. So the question I have is, how does Hyperloop technology work? How does it get these run so fast? And once G4-7 affect on the human body, just want to find that out. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sbu. Doctor, I hope you're able to answer this in just under a minute. How does Hyperloop do technology best. work? When we send cars down the road or trains along a railway, they are encountering air resistance because the front of the vehicle is pushing air molecules out of the way and air molecules weigh something and if you give them a push that takes energy so therefore you get losses you get things slowing you down through friction and applying a force back on you if you put things into a vacuum where you take the air away then they don't have to push against or move out of the way all that atmosphere and so they can move much faster and with lower energy input And so one idea about the travel of the future is that we put vehicles inside tubes that we evacuate. We basically pull a lot of the air out and then we can send things along them at very high speed. They won't ram into loads of air. They won't therefore have to do work to keep on moving. So you have lower friction, lower energy, but very high speed travel. And this is regarded as one way to move people around the planet very fast. Dr. Chris Smith, always a pleasure talking to you on The Naked Scientist. 